Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This interview originally occurred at the 2012 AWP conference in Chicago. The recording features Brian Broder and Claudia Emerson. Hello, and welcome to the Association of Writers and Writing Programs podcast. I'm Brian Broder, and I'm here at the 2012 AWP annual conference in Chicago with poet Claudia Emerson. Claudia Emerson is the author of five books of poetry from LSU Press, including Secure the Shadow and Late Wife, which won the 2006 Pulitzer Prize in Poetry. She has received fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and a Witter Benner Fellowship through the Library of Congress. Named a Virginia Woman in History by the Library of Virginia, she is also former Poet Laureate of Virginia. She is Professor of English at the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, Virginia, where she holds the Arrington Distinguished Chair in Poetry. Claudia Emerson, welcome. Thank you. I'd like you to start off by reading a poem, if you wouldn't mind. Um, would you read Great Depression Story? I'd be happy to. Great Depression Story. Sometimes the season changed in the telling, sometimes the state, but it was always during the Depression, and he was alone in the boxcar, the train stalled beneath a sky wider than any he'd seen so far, the fields of grass wider than the sky. He'd been curious to see if things were as bad somewhere else as they were at home. They were, and worse, he said, places with no trees, no water. He hadn't eaten all day, all week, his hunger hard-fixed, doubled, gleaming as the rails. A lone house broke the sharp horizon, the train dreaming beneath him. So he climbed down, walked out, the grass parting at his knees. The windows were open, curtainless, and the screen door, unlatched, moved to open, too, when he knocked. He could see in all the way through to the kitchen, and he smelled, before he saw, the lidded pot on the stove, the steam escaping. Her clothes moved on the line for all reply, the sheets, a slip, one dress, washed, thin, worn to translucence. Through it he could see what he mistook for fields of roses, until a crow flew in with the wind, sudden fleeting seam. By the time he got back to the train, he'd guessed already what he'd taken, pot and all, a hen, an old one that had quit laying, he was sure, or she wouldn't have killed it. The train began to move then, her house falling away from him. The story ended with the meat not quite done, but, believe him, he ate it all, white and dark, back, breasts, legs, and thighs, strowing the still warm bones behind him for miles. Great, thank you. Wonderful. Um, as in many of her poems, narrative plays a big part in Great Depression story. Uh, could you discuss how you negotiate the formal difficulties of telling stories and poems while still preserving the integrity of the poetic line? Um, well, frankly, it's tricky mm -hmm. to balance that. And um, I've been teaching for a long time, and a lot of the conversation I have with my students is how do you balance that lyric narrative spectrum. And um, I think you've nailed what makes it possible, and that is the line of poetry for me, to be able to do something with the integrity of the line within, usually for, for me, a loose blank verse. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's rough around the edges, but usually that, and that tension between what the sentences are doing, because I write to the sentence, but how that plays both with and against the line of poetry makes all the difference. And in this particular sequence of poems, and in this poem in particular, I decided to work with um, the couplet, uh, which also sort of played into it because the couplet is such a little brief 
uh, room to go into that it becomes almost a longish line to see as having that same integrity. Yeah. But it is tricky when you're um, trying to uh, walk that balance between how much do I need to describe and then what's actually a legitimate, more poetic observation. So lots of revision in short. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, how did you arrive at the couplet as a as a partial solution to this? Uh, let's call it a problem. I don't know. I don't know for 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 this book. I mean that that played a, a a big role in it. And I think honestly, since I have tended in my writing life to conceive of the whole book, sometimes a form will seem appropriate for so much of the book that it's as though um, I'm just into it. Yeah. And so uh, I'm. I'm becoming practiced with it and so it seems very comfortable but it, for me as sure as I'll get comfortable with a particular form a book just about exhausts it for me and then I'll want to try something else mm -hmm. and this uh yeah the um the idea of the rough blank verse or, or the ghost of blank verse being yeah. you know somehow behind uh these lines um and also, uh, I'm thinking about uh, your lines that are more heavily in jam than others, yeah. um, and which, you know, sometimes even stop with an article or something, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I guess maybe I'm interested in how, I don't know, how you, maybe maybe you've already answered the question, but I guess it's blank verse that kind of um, sets up that skeleton or something? Yeah. Or, yeah, okay. Well, I do think, um thought a lot about, I mean, we know the tradition, you can look through the history of, of the blank verse line, but again, I talk in my teaching quite a bit about why do you think that's so? You know, why would it, is it just because it's fashionable or was fashionable or seems comfortable to poets? But I, I do believe that line length is about what the ear can take in and remember it, and it's about what the eye can take in and see the line as having its own half meaning or integrity. Mm -hmm. um, I think half meaning is uh, Mary Kinsey's term for that. Okay. Um, but again, the, the tension between uh, the enjammed lines the, 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 and the parts of sentences that might make up a line are all very interesting to me. And I, I, I know Ellen Bryant Voigt talks about reading as a writer. I know often when I'm looking at other poets who are interested in the same thing, um, that's what will attract me, is how they're uh, making use of that tension. Mm -hmm. And um, your second book, Pinion, is spoken by two fictional characters, Sister and Preacher. Right. Um, could you talk about the unique challenges of writing in the voice of another, about events in which you were never personally involved? Yeah, that... Okay, the truth about that book is that it grew out of um, a folklore project I did as an undergraduate at the University of Virginia. Wow, wow. Um, <clears throat> it involved a, not, uh, a family that I knew only two members of, the two brothers that appear in the book, the preacher character. Um, they were elderly when I met them, and I went to collect oral histories and, and the music they played. Uh, one played the fiddle and the other one played the harmonica. And their lives are so fascinating to me because as a person, ever since I was a little girl, I've been sort of backward looking, I guess. I like to hear uh, about what my father called the olden days. And to go to this family's house where they heated with wood, had chickens in the yard, the whole uh, sense of an era that was already gone. I mean, they didn't participate in daylight saving time. They just <laughs> refused. Um, and they just caught my imagination, and, and I, I couldn't quite get them out of it. Okay, fast forward to, I did that project, and that was one thing. Um, but years later, I'd already published the first book. I was working as an adjunct between two and sometimes three schools. Mm -hmm. I would drive sometimes 50 miles mm -hmm. in between classes as before gra uh, gas gasoline prices were so high. And 
at the same time, I was um, becoming quite a dedicated long-distance runner. And one day when I was on a run, I thought, if I don't conceive of a larger project, I'm afraid I won't ever write again because I was too busy not just teaching but learning to teach. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just had this notion, I think I'll write a series of poems all on the voice of this uh, male character. And I believe now the reason I chose that persona is because um, – I did. I felt I didn't have a, a story of my own worth telling, or that my own life wasn't interesting enough. And his life had seemed much more interesting. He was also um, kind of an angry person. He had never married. There were a lot of interesting things mm-hmm. about this figure, and and he just caught my imagination. But now, when I look back on him, or why why was I drawn to that? I mean, we can say that we write strictly from the imagination, but there's something in my, there was something in my emotional context or my circumstantial um, context that drew me to that character, someone who felt alone, furious, whatever that was actually me. Mm -hmm. Um, Challenges of it, I think, are obvious that I was a younger woman. Um, I was living in the country and heating with wood, but that's not enough to make all that legitimate. Um, To make that leap into this other consciousness. This other consciousness of another era um, and of a, another gender. And, of course, people do it all the time. Um, we, we have a clue what, what's going on. But it took some good readers for me at the time to say, how authentic does this voice sound? Can I uh, pull this off? Another challenge of it, though, um, once I thought the poems had some promise, when I sent them out to the magazines to try to place some of them, uh, my name's Claudia, anybody looking, and even though you're not supposed to mistake the author for the first person I was concerned at the time that no one would immediately assume this is in the voice of an older man. So originally they all carried little subtitles, Preacher Does This, That, or The Other Thing. That was a long time ago, but I'm pretty sure I sent them all out uh, that way. It's interesting now, though, until fairly recently, I went away from Persona after that book. Again, I found it uh, exhausting to do it for so long. And then... Late in the game, the sister character was originally written in third person. Mm. And so when I decided it was a long poem and a whole project, and I'm pointing at the floor because I spread the whole thing out on the floor to see <laughs> what have I got going on here. And my editor, Dave Smith, had read it in draft form and said, you can't have, he didn't think it was successful for me to have one character in the first person and the other one in third. So I had to revise her. So that was all Dave Smith's idea. All Dave clear. Smith to take her to, <laughs> wow. the, but my, a good reader for me at the time was Betty Adcock down in Raleigh, North Carolina. And she agreed with him. Um, it wasn't a terrible revision, but I had at that point, the decision to write her in third person was, okay, I'm, I'm don't want to do this persona anymore. And we all know that third person can say things that first won't. Mm-hmm. So that revision was, was really interesting, time-consuming. Sounds like it. Yeah, interesting, too, that um, that the male character was the one that you, A, started with, and yeah. B, uh, originally had as the only one in first person That's as right. well. That's kind of interesting. That's right. <laughs> um, so the, adopted, uh, the adoption of uh, Persona seems a natural extension of negative capability, or at least Keats' idea that a poet has no identity, that he is continually filling some other body, the sun, the moon, the sea. Um would you agree? Or? I think that's right. Mm-hmm. I do. And speaking of that other body, I mean, I think there's a current uh, research about whatever we write is a way of taking it out of our own bodies and putting it mm-hmm. in, uh, into uh, another 
um, way of being. And so that even if we write personal things or what we think is personal, we're expressing some emotional truth, it still others it to take it out. And then it's in somebody else's voice or in their eye. And in the form of this uh, other object, too, which That's is right. outside of the body. That's right. You know. um, over the course of your career, you've uh, you've written free verse poems as well as poems in received forms. Um, most of Late Wife, for example, is written in free verse uh, until the last section, which is composed mostly of sonnets. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, negotiating between those two, you know, sort of open forms? And although although you mentioned before that sure. there was there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. The I think looking back on it in the writing of Late Wife, I'll have a, an interesting writing process story about that book. I was teaching at the time four classes a semester. I had, I had 85 to 100 students every single semester. Um, my husband, Kent, got on the 715 train and came home on the 615 train. Uh, we were very happily married. I did not want to work at night. So I crafted my day completely around his. Now, up, up until that marriage, I had been a morning writer, mm-hmm. right? So now I'm up in the oh, dark 30, as he says, to take <laughs> him to the train, and I'm teaching and prepping classes and grading papers and doing all that. I had a window um, of about 4.30, 5 o'clock till the 6.15, and I wrote that book in the over the space of three fall semesters and one spring, and I did it by leaving school and going to a coffee shop. That's the only thing I've ever done successfully in that public-private space. Mm-hmm. But I actually uh, gave a craft talk on this because I, I didn't know it at the time, but I think this is part of what happened, that I had an emotional urgency to write the poems as I was feeling those things. That was a first for me. I'm, once, I'm somebody who can wait two or three years to, to bring something from idea to poem. I wanted to write those more quickly. Um, an hour and 15 minutes... I could work on a sonnet. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see much beyond that, and I knew I was going to write a certain number of them or variations on them, and that really, really attracted me. I had been heavily influenced. The subject is nothing like what I wrote, but Ellen Bryant Voigt's uh, wonderful, she calls it a mosaic of sonnets, uh, Curie, yeah, uh, the Spanish influenza, where she does that, and I just copied her. Composed. I thought, that's great. I don't <laughs> want to write strict forms, but the sonnet form seemed appropriate to the subject. And the truth is the divorce poems and some in the middle section were originally written flush left, more tetrameter lines. I didn't worry so much about them. And late in the game with that book, um, I thought I have an IU construction in opposite ends of this book, and the I is utterly changed and the U is completely changed. Hmm. They can't look anything alike. They can't be anything alike. So I took a jackhammer to the first part of the book. Uh, probably, you know... Uh, I don't think Dave had seen it yet, and I went for what I uh, was playing around with. I think there are some staggered stepped couplets, but also uh, William Carlos Williams' uh, uh, triadic line. Mm-hmm. I was interested in the instability of the tercet, and I went for that in there, and the heavily enjammed tercets as well, sort of what, what was going on in the couplets in Great Depression story. And that's another thing. It may not work for you, but if you're not exactly satisfied with what you're doing, even at the 11th hour for a sequence within a shapely volume, you can just, you know, again, take the jackhammer to it see what happens. Yeah. I made some really good revisions to those poems by changing the form up. Mm-hmm. But again, I wanted those to look more ragged. I wanted them to be uneven, and I wanted what I felt was a, a, a stability in the, the, the letters to Kent. And, th- and I was happy in the end with how that, that worked out. But I do think that time, form, and uh, space, sort of the architecture 
all coming together was was what worked there. Mm-hmm. But after I wrote that book, though, I could not work in that coffee shop. <laughs> Everything about it. I, again, I gave a craft talk on this up in Vermont a couple summers ago because part of my point was writers in space and how important it is to understand um, your space and, and what it's doing for your writing life because sometimes when your writing isn't going well, there could be something wrong with your space. Yeah. And And when I kept going to that coffee shop trying to work, on the next book, and everything was annoying me, the music, the people, the espresso machine, mm-hmm. and finally I had to say, it's the space, and it was. It just didn't work anymore. It had worked then, not again. So not only a room of one's own, but the right room of one's own at the right time. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. You uh, you already mentioned Dave Smith twice or three times. Um, uh, could you talk about working with uh, with LSU and working with Dave uh, over the years and how yeah. that has evolved? And yeah, it's it's been an interesting uh, journey. Um, let's see. To back up a little bit, I had sent a manuscript to LSU pretty soon after I finished my MFA, and it wasn't ready. Mm-hmm. And they said some nice things and turned it down. And I kept working on it, working on it. Around that time, Dave was still editing for the Southern Review. And he took some poems for the magazine. Um, and then uh, I had sent it back to LSU. It was um, in much better shape. And my mentor, uh, Betty Adcock, had helped me put the manuscript together. And Dave, around that time, decided to start his uh, signature series, Southern Messenger Poets. And I, I don't know how he got wind of the manuscript being uh, over at the main uh, mm-hmm. house, but he went over and got it. And I remember he called me on the phone and said, I'm starting this signature series, and I'd like to, to publish this book. And then he went on this long thing, as I recall, about, um, well, you know, the book has gotten a good uh, reader's report already, and you might want to stay just in the main uh, lineup of poetry. This is new. And it's like, I've been trying to get a first book for how long? And I thought, <laughs> no, I, that sounds great <laughs> to me. So, um he took it, and um, it's it's been a really good relationship with LSU. I think they make beautiful books. I have loved the experience of knowing uh, it's just about everybody there who's on staff. The book designers are on staff. They actually read the books that they design the covers for. It's just a it's a really interesting uh, place. I think they've got a great list. I'm proud to be part of it. Dave has certainly published a lot of interesting. Uh, uh, poets as part of the signature series. So, yeah, I have a brand new book downstairs. Just came up uh, from signing. Absolutely, and it just came out. What, it just came uh, out this just, week or yeah. last week. And or? I think from Amazon, it's just now available. So and this is Secure the Shadow. Secure the um, Shadow. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Book? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, after uh, Late Wife, I had shifted gears in my fourth book, and I wrote something not personal at all. Personal at all. In part, uh, figure studies grew out of my experience having been the dean of an all-girls boarding school. Mm-hmm. But then in the interim there, my personal life sort of kicked back in and insisted that I write about it. Um, my only brother, only sibling, died in 2006 from a rare kind of cancer. And, you know, that um, Hugo uh, uh, phrase about writing on or off the subject or writing around the subject and so I was writing off the subject of my brother's death for a while and then I felt like I had to write was compelled to write back on it and at the same time my father died or about two years after that um from old age he lived to be almost 94 so uh, those two deaths I wanted to try to 
handle in the same book, although I didn't want to write about either one of them as exactly as my brother or my father, but as sort of states of being, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Of course, of course. And then within that, I also tried some things that were ambitious for me, a poem about uranium mining. <laughs> um, they found a very, in the 50s, they found a very rich vein of uranium underneath my home county. Oh, wow. And it is credited with uh, the high rate of cancers there and wow. uh, things like that. But to take on uranium in a poem was hard to do. But I was really pleased with how it turned out, but it took a long time hmm. to write it. So I have some longer things. I have a long, um, longish poem about um, uh, hog killing mm-hmm. in the same book. So a v- variety of things. And for me, up until that book, the books had been easier uh, somehow to see. Mm-hmm. Even with Pinion, which was hard in the revision phase, I, I knew what it was going to look like. This one was a little bit harder. But I have one good story, too, about... Uh, writing this book, at one point I sent an email to my friend David Wojohn, who's a poet down at VCU, and I said, oh, I've had an epiphany when I was on a run this morning. I'm going to take the poems about my father out of this book. There weren't many, I mean, six or seven. It's just, I think it's too much. It's too much about my family. It's it's too personal, um, and I was worried the, the book would seem over the top somehow. I got worried about it. And he wrote back... Um, a really compelling email. He hadn't read the book at that point. He did read it for me later, but he just said quite simply, I haven't read this book, um, but I feel I have to say this to you. Don't you think you owe some fidelity to how those deaths happened in time? Yeah. And um, I was sort of ashamed of myself for not saying, okay, am I poet enough to do this or not? Or just put them in a drawer. And but here's an interesting thing that happened. I had taken the poems about my father out of the book, was seeing a, a different book, more focused on my brother. And then when David said that, I, I thought he was right right away. But the consequence was that I reordered the whole thing. And suddenly it began to make a certain sense. So uh, thank goodness for uh, A, good writer friends and close reader friends, and then just somebody who has that gut reaction to something you've said is, now, wait a minute, maybe you need to think about that again. And I did. Yeah, just you, on a philosophical level, yeah, an abstract philosophical exactly. level, without having having read anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So. Um, I have what, what's maybe a quirky question, but uh, on the acknowledgments page of Figure Studies, uh, you thank Bruce uh, Dalzell is yeah, yeah. Uh, for, for burning a piano for you on the uh, on the banks of the Hawking River in Athens, Ohio, yeah. so you could conduct research. Uh, <laughs> Would you would you care to? Uh, sure, Bruce Dalzell is a great musician, singer, songwriter out in Athens, Ohio, and he's been a really good musician friend of my husband Kent Ippolito for many years. And Bruce uh, produces records. He's a great sort of pie piper out there uh, in Athens, and he's also a piano tuner. And one. Visit he made to Fredericksburg with a bunch of musician friends. I believe it was in Fredericksburg. He talked about these piano burnings that he has because he said that pianos have a limited lifespan. They don't all live forever. And sometimes people would just bring pianos to his house and leave them like strays, but they're almost dead strays. They can't be fixed. So what do you do with a piano that wasn't much good to start with? And so what he did, um, He'd have a party, burn the piano on the banks of the river, and everybody play music and have some beers. And, it, you know, it sounded great to me. And so 
I had never been to one of those parties. So we went out to Athens for some music event, and I asked him if he would burn one for me. So I had my own private... Oh, that's right. So he said, for you, Claudia, anything. Yeah, I have, I have great pictures of this. And the funniest thing, I think Kent got a picture of this, they got the piano. We didn't have the party because we were going to do other music things. So it was just maybe four or five of us. And they set up a little chair for me. So I sat in a chair and took notes. <laughs> That's <laughs> this amazing. This piano went up in, in flames. Uh, what kind of noises did it make when it was? Uh, loud. Yeah. I mean, the tension lets go and it does various sort of popping and stuff. And um, it was really fascinating. But um, I believe, though, if you Google piano fire or piano burning there is an artist who does various piano art things because i was disappointed that someone else was doing piano burning but then a funny end of the story and then i'll stop about that when um, bruce and the music guys came again to virginia we had a ukulele burning for him in our <laughs> garden in the city <laughs> because just the smaller scale just the smaller scale <laughs> um that's great um you write and perform music with your husband, Ken Apolito, uh, who you've mentioned. Um, what is it like sharing a household with another artist? And uh, maybe more importantly, what is it like collaborating and performing together? Yeah. It's a lot of fun. You know, he's the serious musician. I sort of step in and dabble in it a little bit. Um, but back to the question of what it's like to live with another artist. I'm, I'm grateful I don't live with another poet, mm -hmm. I think. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know that that would go as well. I love living with somebody who is an artist in, in a different um genre or medium and and he's also a, an acoustic instrument collector and that's a lot of fun just to live with the instruments um we took our dining room and turned it into a music room and the walls are covered with well he plays everything in the mandolin family uh we have an upright bass um we have over 30 guitars and then he just collects um uh, Inst more interesting instruments that hang, but we like the things out where we can see them. They're mm -hmm. all, mostly all players, but they're um, pieces of art. Uh, so dusting is really uh, kind of a chore. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and, and then in the winter, we have to make sure we get the humidifier and stuff because the instruments start to pop and crack and all that kind of thing. But it's been great. And then I've learned a lot from him, too, about teaching. He um, is also a guitar teacher, and he says smart things once in a while, like, well, you can teach anybody to play a song, but I'm trying to teach someone to play the guitar. And so when now when I go in to teach a creative writing workshop and someone hands in a poem and they're stressing out of their revisions, it's, sure, that poem matters, but the more important thing is, what did you learn from this one that will, you know, uh, come to, to have meaning in the yeah. next one you write, and that's learning the neck of the guitar. Yeah, something something transferable. And exactly. Something, something lasting as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, finally, what are you working on now? Secure in the Shadow uh, is just out. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else in the I works? I do, or, okay, yeah. Great, wonderful. I, I'm hoping I'm about halfway through something. I'm not sure. But uh, I'm calling this book The Opposite House, uh -huh. and that's from Emily Dickinson's There's Been a Death in the Opposite House as lately as today because I'm sort of keeping on with sort of the not a death obsession, but I'm interested in sort of the industry of death uh -huh, or yeah. rituals around it. So these poems are all third-person uh, observations. I'm dealing with narrative a little bit again. Um, and they're moving around in time, in history. Some are sort of set in a small town, you can imagine me doing, and then uh, others are, are not situated there. As a matter of fact, I got a Guggenheim Fellowship to work on this project, and I'm going to go to Sicily um, later in great, the month to great. do some looking there. I just 
uh, got interested in some of the ways people in the early part of the 20th century uh, looked at death there. So um, doing that and visiting. I'm also interested in 19th century medical uh, education. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so um, Such as it was. So. It, yeah. <laughs> and um, early surgery. As a matter of fact, I just went here in Chicago to the, I'm going to get the name wrong, but it's a surgery museum. Okay. Wow. And wow. Uh, it was, we went yesterday. I rode the Ferris wheel and went to the surgery museum. <laughs> the Ferris wheel, which we can see yeah, from this window. Yeah. yeah. But um, the cab driver, a Chicago cab driver, said, Where are we going? <laughs> and taking anybody there. So. <laughs> but it was. You know the surgery museum. You know, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> but yeah, that's what I'm working on now. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful to write this one maybe a little bit uh, faster. Not faster, but. It seems to have some momentum now, and I think because it's not personal, it's just easier uh, to do those things. Mm-hmm. Great, wonderful, uh, Claudia Emerson. Thank you very much for. Well, thank you, Brian. This chat. I really enjoyed it. Wonderful. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org. <laughs>